Welcome to MRCS on the Move. Bowels, bones, and backseat vibers. I'm your host, Naomi, but this is the podcast where you do the talking. Hello, and long time no recording. How are we all doing? It's nice to be back doing some of this. I'm aware some people have just done an exam which I hear was back up to the the normal number of 17 stations. I imagine those people aren't actually listening anymore um, unless they are very keen and want to carry on. But if any of you are, then I really hope it went well and maybe stop listening and enjoy the post-exam period um, and the ignorance before finding out your result, my favorite bit. But anyway, I'm gonna get back into and get back into doing some of these on a relatively regular basis. I'm not going to promise too much. So we're going to start with a probably a short episode on diabetes and specifically some key things surgeons should know. So let's um, get going. To start with, just simply tell me what are the different types of diabetes? So we obviously know there's type 1, type 2. So type 1, insulin-dependent diabetes. So this is an autoimmune condition resulting in the destruction and failure of the insulin-producing cells, which are which cells? The islets of Langerhans cells of the pancreas. And its usual onset is in younger people. And then you've got type 2, which is insulin-independent diabetes. And this is from a reduced peripheral tissue sensitivity to insulin and an overall insulin resistance. So we've talked about insulin. Tell me about insulin. Where is it produced and how does it work? We've already said one of these. As we said, it's produced by the islet, I can't say that word, of Langerhans cells of the pancreas in response to a hypoglycemia. And then it travels in the blood, binds to GLUT4, which is a glucose transporter type 4. This is a insulin-regulated glucose transporter which is mainly found in adipose tissue and facilitates the transport of glucose into cells. What are some of the other actions of insulin that you can tell me about? So I would split these down into carbohydrate functions, lipid functions, and protein functions. So carbohydrate functions, so it um, increases, as we've said, the the uptake of glucose into the tissues. It promotes glycogen synthesis, so glycogenesis in the tissues, particularly the liver. It inhibits gluconeogenesis, so that's the production of glucose from um, proteins and amino acids and it stimulates the hepatic generation of glucose 6-phosphate. 
and in terms of lipids, it stimulates lipid uptake into cells, enhances oxygenation of lipids, and it increases fat deposition in cells, and it stimulates lipogenesis, and it inhibits lipolysis. So it's storing, 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 not breaking down. Okay, and then with proteins, it enhances the uptake of amino acids and stimulates protein synthesis. What are the major complications of poorly controlled diabetes? How would you divide these? So I would divide these into micro and macrovascular complications. So microvascular is your diabetic nephropathy and chronic kidney disease, neuropathy and retinopathy. Okay, so nephropathy, neuropathy and retinopathy. So your microvascular. And then your macrovascular is your MIs, your strokes, your peripheral vascular disease. In addition to this, there's also sort of um, increased risk of poor wound healing and sepsis. So what are the challenges and factors that a surgeon must consider when operating on a diabetic patient? We've kind of touched on some of these already, but you've got your hyperglycemia impairs that immune response leading to your poor wound healing. There's also an increased risk of post-op um, infections. Microvascular disease will impair blood supply to the tissues and this will further reduce healing and also increase the risk of dehiscence. So things like wound dehiscence, anastomotic leaks, all those sorts of things. There's an increased post-operative mortality and that's basically due to the increased risk of MIs, strokes, chronic kidney disease. There's a risk of electrolyte abnormalities secondary to osmotic diuresis and increased risk of things like pressure sores. Lots of things, is that good? What factors, say you're seeing a patient in a pre-operative clinic um, and you're getting them ready for maybe a bowel resection operation or something, um, what must you consider pre-operatively? I think it would be good to firstly understand the patient's uh, preoperative glycemic control. So look at their BMs, look at their um, most recent HbA1c or get a most recent HbA1c if they haven't had one in a while. That'll give you an idea of actually how poorly controlled it is. Have a look at what complications they may have already from their diabetes. So your CKD, ischemic heart disease, peripheral vascular disease, or any of those microvascular diseases. They need um, electrolytes doing and they need an ECG. You need to consider what medications you're going to stop, um, anti-hyperglycemics you're going to stop and when to stop them. Um, we will talk about that in a second. Um, and then one thing that will need to be considered when planning is to put them first on the list. So that generally patients, diabetic patients go first on an operating list. What medication risks 
should be considered with a type 1 and type 2 diabetic. So type 1, you have um, your unpredictability or unpredictable um, insulin requirements. So that means they're likely to need a sliding scale. Type 2, the main thing would be the risk of lactic acidosis with, the, with metformin. So that brings us on to how we'd manage patients' diabetic medications. So can you tell me what you know about what you do with antiglycemics? We'll start with that and then we'll talk about insulin afterwards. So you're sat in a pre-assessment clinic, you've got a patient in front of you who's diabetic, type 2, and then a bunch of anti-diabetics or anti-glycemics. Uh, I think the first thing you'd probably say is you check local guidelines because a lot of this is very difficult to remember um, and it, that would be reasonable to just double check. But generally speaking, some key points, all anti-oral anti-glycemics can be taken as normal the day before the surgery particular ones to omit on the day of the surgery are SGL2 inhibitors. So that's things like dapaglyphosin and your sulfonylureas because they can cause hyperglycemias. So then that's like liclozide. Um, your gliptins, so your citagliptins and your GLP-1 analogs, which is your dulalagliptide, <laughs> sorry, that was probably not said right, can be continued um, on the day of the surgery. And then you've got your metformins. So your, your metformin is only one medication. Um, so metformin, obviously, you've got this risk of lactic acidosis. And it's a bit complicated, but generally, if only one meal is missed, they've got a good EGFR, so greater than 60, and they've got a low risk of AKI, then they can continue their metformin as normal, except if they're on it TDS, so if they take it at lunchtime, then nice guidelines is to omit, omit the lunchtime dose. If they're missing more than one meal, then it should be stopped when your fasting begins, and they should be on a um, variable weight infusion um, from the point of their, uh, their fasting starts, if they have one more than one daily dose. So if they just take metformin once a day, but they are missing two meals, then you just omit that dose. They don't have to be on the sliding on the scale, the infusion. Does that make sense? Uh, it's a bit complicated. Generally, if someone is on an insulin infusion, then you would stop your oral antiglycemics and restart when the patient eats and drinks after the surgery. So continue them all to the day before, omit SGL2 inhibitors and sulfonylureas, um, gliptins and GLP-1 analogs can be continued and metformin dependent on their risks and how many times they take, how many meals they're missing and how many times they take metformin a day. Again, like I said, probably you'd, you'd be checking guidelines. What do you think you do with insulin? Can you tell me what you do with insulin? So insulin management does vary slightly um, between 
minor and major operations and poorly controlled and well controlled patients. So again, you'd always check local guidelines. But generally for major operations, the day prior, if they say they take an evening dose of a long-acting medica- long-acting insulin, you'd reduce that to 80%. If you take your short-acting as normal. On the day of the surgery, again, your long-acting continues at 80%, but all other insulin, so your short-acting insulin, would be omitted until the patient is eating and drinking normally. And patients should be started on an insulin, on a variable rate insulin infusion. So what makes up a variable rate insulin infusion? So it is IV insulin, um, dextrose 5%, which is um, 125 mils per hour, and then potassium chloride, and then it's also given with sodium chloride. Uh, That helps to maintain your electrolytes um, as you're giving insulin and prevent your hypoglycemias as you're giving IV insulin. Whilst the patient is on a variable rate insulin, how often should they have their BMs done? They should have their blood sugars measured every hour, actually, when they're on an insulin infusion. Who else might be helpful um, when it comes to managing diabetic patients, if if it's complicated? Endocrinologists or diabetic nurse specialists are always available. When would you stop someone's variable rate insulin? So you would stop their insulin when the patient starts to eat and drink after the operation. So obviously that's very dependent on what type of operation they've had and um, how, how big an operation it is. Specifically though, how would you restart a type 1 on their regular insulin regime? We'll talk about a basal bolus, basal bolus um, regime first. So there must be some sort of overlap. Um, So as we've said, their long acting should have continued as normal anyway, Um, but then, well, well, at 80%. um, So then when you restart eating, you give them their bolus, so their rapid acting insulin, 20 minutes before a meal, they have their meal, and then you stop the infusion 30 minutes after the meal. So there's that crossover. If they're having a twice daily mix insulin regime, then you would have to restart it either breakfast or an evening meal. And similarly, you continue your infusion till roughly um, 30 minutes after your meal. So there we go. That's all I'm really going to say about insulin um, and diabetes. I think just key things, they're obviously much higher risk patients for any operations and um, you have to think about how you're managing them, their blood sugars. If you're concerned or confused, You can always um, read local guidelines or talk to diabetic nurse specialists. Um, I'd just like to plug again my fundraising. Um, If anyone finds this useful, is um, grateful for this um, resource, I would be really um, grateful if you could contribute to my fundraising. It's for a fabulous hospice down uh, near Peterborough um, who have um, looked after my family really well. Um, and we would like to raise money to give back to them and support them. So please find the link in the show notes. Um, and 
um, if you're able, that would be fabulous. Um, take care, guys. It's been a pleasure being back and I do hope to do another one very shortly. Um, all the best. Ta-ta. Oh, well, a dim, boom, dim, boom, dim, dry, boom.